Well, I am uh, so glad to be back today. I wasn't here last week. Corey and I were out of town last week, and uh, man, I heard you guys had a great service. We had seven people make decisions for Jesus Christ last week, and uh, that was just exciting for us. That's why we exist, and we're so thankful for the people that chose to just, to just put their hope and their trust in God, which is what we just prayed about just a few minutes ago. And uh, Pastor Mark, who's our senior pastor from Mount Perry North at both of our locations, was here, and he continued our series called Mixtape, which we've been in in the month of November where we've been looking at the book of Psalms, and we've been talking about these different Psalms and the things that they represent as it relates to the emotions that we experience in our lives. And so today we're going to conclude that uh, by talking about a song of thanks. And I'm sure that you can't guess why we're talking about that at all. But we're going to be in Psalm 100, so if you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn to Psalm 100 or you have a smartphone, you've got a Bible app on there, feel free to pull that out. Uh, and, and join me in Psalm 100, which is where we're going to start today. We will not stay there the entire time, but we will start there in Psalm 100, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the entire psalm here uh, of Psalm 100. It's not very long. Psalm 100, this is what it says. If you don't have a Bible or a smartphone with you, the words will be up on the screen. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. It said, enter his gates with thanksgiving. It says, give him thanks. Bless his name. Thanksgiving's coming this week, and I got to be honest, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays. I'm a big holiday guy. I like holidays in general because it usually means we're going to eat something. And uh, Thanksgiving is kind of the culmination of all things food because we spend time together usually around the dinner table eating. And I love that. Uh, I'm what you might call a foodie. Uh, I don't have really expensive foodie taste. I I would also classify myself as a foodie just because I like Burger King. I just love food in general. I smell that char-grilled Whopper as I'm driving by Burger King, and it does something to me. My stomach, some of you are getting hungry now. You can thank the local Burger King for sponsoring this segment of the message. (laughs) Totally kidding. Uh, Man, I love food. And so Thanksgiving is something that I love. Because, you know, we get to be together. There's football, which I love, obviously. I talk about football just about every week. And I love it, you know, because you get to sit around and eat. You get to wear stretchy pants, you know, so they got room. And you just seem to eat all day long, right? I don't know how your family did Thanksgiving, but when I was growing up, we would do Thanksgiving kind of for two days. Like you would wake up and there would be like a little bit of what they had been cooking, like they started the night before. And so you just kind of be walking through the kitchen and you just snack on it a little bit. And then you would have the actual Thanksgiving meal. And then because it's scientifically proven, then you would take a nap because there's something in Turkey that makes you sleep. And then you would go take a nap and then you would wake up and you would eat leftovers that were just kind of still left on the stove or on the counter. And you would eat those leftovers. And then the next morning you would wake up and you would have... I don't know, again, I don't know how your family did it, but we would take like the turkey and we would make like turkey sandwiches and and they would make like turkey gravy and, you know, we'd come up with all kinds of things, whatever was left over. You just make a pot of stew and it was like everything that was left over. We would eat that the next day. I got to be honest. I'm a little hungry right now just thinking about it. 
And I don't know about you, but I mean, we've got Thanksgiving dinner prepared for you now. Servers, can you, I'm just kidding. I love Thanksgiving because I love food and I love to eat. And so for me, it was something special. I'll tell you what really started Thanksgiving for me. It was two things. I would wake up first thing in the morning on Thanksgiving morning. It didn't matter what time I woke up. It was 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m., did not matter. Two things were happening. I was in my grandmother's house, grandfather's house. I was there. Two things were happening. One, the television was on to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Second of all, I could smell that they had already started cooking. I would wake up to the smell of turkey. I would wake up to the smell of dressing, stuffing, sweet potatoes. I mean, I know I'm messing you up today, but I'm telling you, like, that is what Thanksgiving is to me. I could smell it. I woke up smelling that. And I heard the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. That was how Thanksgiving would start to me. And so as I thought about Thanksgiving this week in preparation for today, leading us into this week of Thanksgiving, I thought about some of my favorite smells. I know that sounds weird. But I started thinking about the things that I love to smell. My my son Cooper turns 10 today. That is crazy to me. He turns 10 today. It's his birthday. So if you see him, he's in like neon green stuff all over. Um, you can wish him a happy birthday. It'll freak him out. But he's, he's 10 today. I do that every time. I'm sorry. He's 10 today, and he has always had like the nose of a bloodhound. When he was about three or four, he came downstairs one night, and he said, Dad, what do I smell? And I was like, buddy, I, I don't know. And he said, here, come smell my nose and tell me what it is. Because he was convinced at three or four years old that if I could smell his nose, I could smell what his nose was smelling, which to me is really kind of genius. But he informed us a few weeks ago, now that he's almost 10, and today he's 10, but this was a few weeks ago and he was still nine. He was still a youngster of nine. Now he's a man of 10. He informed us, and I'm going to embarrass him here. He's not in the room, but I'm going to embarrass him, that he was getting his man smell. He was, he was almost 10, Dad, and I'm getting my man smell. I said, all right, what am I supposed to do with that, bud? And so as a part of his birthday gift today, he opened it yesterday, he got some new deodorant and body spray and like shampoo and soap that smells like, you know, men, right? Because he's getting his man smell. Now, we were in student ministry, my wife Corey and I, we were in student ministry for about 10 years, and so I know where this is headed. He's going to douse himself head to toe in this stuff because we, we were with middle schoolers, and if you're a middle schooler in the room, let me just tell you, tone it down a little bit. Because for middle schoolers, I mean, it's like if I can't smell it, then nobody can smell it. And if they can't smell it downstairs, it's not quite enough. And if they can't smell it next door in the house, across the yard, then it's just about right. So, we, you know, I know where this is headed, but he, he got his man smell. And so that's not one of my favorite smells. Let me tell you what a couple of my favorite smells are. I, I got a cup of coffee from the lobby outside. And if you arrive early on Sundays, you can get a cup of coffee. If you're late, we don't allow you to do that. It's your punishment for being late. I love a good-smelling cup of coffee in the morning. i got to be honest. I love a good-smelling cup cup of coffee pretty much 24-7. I love the smell of coffee. I told you already, I love the smell of Thanksgiving. I love the smell of the desserts at Thanksgiving, which my grandmother used to line up on the ironing board down the hallway because she was out of counter space. 
I love, and so I would just walk by the ironing board and just smell the banana pudding and the pumpkin pie. I know I'm messing you up. It's okay. I'm preparing my stomach now for this week, and I love that smell. I love the smell of apple pie. I love the smell of my wife's perfume. I love the smell, and I don't know why I put these two back to back, so don't think anything about it. I love the smell of a good baseball glove. I really do. I love smells. And scientists will tell us that smell and the sense of smell is one of the strongest memory things. You have more memories connected to smell than you actually realize. And so you can walk in and you can smell something and it can take you back to your grandmother's living room where you were sleeping on a pallet on Thanksgiving mornings or it can take you to a certain day or a certain meal or a certain event because smell is very connected to the brain. And did you know, though, you probably didn't know this. I'm, I'm here to teach you today. Did you know that God can smell? Do you know that? God can smell. If you got your Bibles, flip with me to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. This is a book that we don't reference a lot, but this is the beginning of the law that God was laying out for his children, his people, the children of Israel, and how they were going to be set apart among these other pagan nations that they were living among and they were about to live among. And this is what it says in Leviticus chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We'll read a few verses here. The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle and said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle so that you may be accepted by the Lord and lay your hand on the animal's head, that means to kill it, and the Lord will accept its death in your place to purify you. I want to read that sentence one more time. The Lord will accept its death, the animal, in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Verse 9, then the priest will burn the entire sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. It is a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, this is the beginning, and we read other places throughout the book of Leviticus, but there are 40 places in the Old Testament where we are told that God found an aroma pleasant or that there was a scent or an aroma that was pleasing to God. 40 times in the Old Testament. Now, most of those happen between the books of Genesis and the book of Leviticus, this first part of the Old Testament, the first few books of the Old Testament, that's really where a lot of this happens. We see that Noah, when he came off the ark, he was there, the guy on the ark, and he brought the animals two by two onto the ark, and he brings them on the ark, and they're there in the ark for 40 days and 40 nights while it rains, and they come off of the ark, and it says that Noah took and made a sacrifice to God. Now, I have a theory that he was killing the animals that were the most annoying on the boat. It's not in the Bible, so that's not scripture, that's Jeremy's translation. But I think Noah gets off the boat and his wife has got strangled some animal that was just like neighing in the middle of the night so they couldn't sleep or something. And that's what they offered for sacrifice. That's funnier than you're giving it credit for. So Noah shows up on dry land, the waters have receded, and he creates this altar and he creates a sacrifice to God. And it says that that was pleasing to God. We get to the book of Leviticus, there are other places, and in Leviticus 1, and Leviticus 2, and Leviticus 3, and Leviticus 4, Leviticus 6, Leviticus 8, and in other places throughout Leviticus, we are taught about these different offerings that can be presented to God. And in several of those instances, 
we are told that when the priest would make the sacrifice, the aroma was pleasing to God. Now, I do not believe, even for a moment, that the aroma was pleasing to God because he liked the smell of the animal being sacrificed. I do not believe that he liked the smell of the fire necessarily, though that's one thing I left out earlier because I love the smell of a good fire. I don't think that's what got God going as he smelled it. You know what I think it was? I think it was the obedience of his people. And I think it was the sense of gratitude of his people. Think about what he said to Moses there in the tabernacle in Leviticus chapter 1. He says, I want you to bring from among the best of your flock, the best of your herd, I want you to bring an animal, and I want you to kill the animal and offer that animal as a sacrifice to me. And when you offer the sacrifice, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that sacrifice and allow its death to stand in your place for the wrongdoing that you've done. And I'm going to make you right because of the sacrifice of that animal. And the smoke and the fire and the offering of that animal up to God was, an, was a pleasing aroma to God. Now, God knew what Moses couldn't know. God knew what the children of Israel and the priests there could not fully understand, but what you and I have access to because we have the New Testament. God knew that those animals that were being killed and being sacrificed on behalf of those people were actually just a temporary substitution that was needed for those people. And God knew, and what you and I know that the Old Testament saints did not know, is that there was coming a once-for-all-time sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who would come and live on the earth and die on a cross, and his death would make us right. And we wouldn't have to sacrifice animals anymore. But the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the sacrifices of Leviticus, the sacrifices of those Old Testament saints given to God kind of wafts an aroma up to God that is about obedience and gratitude because they are saying to God, thank you that I don't have to die for my sin. Thank you that you've created another way for me to be made right. Thank you for creating another way to purify me that doesn't require my life as the sacrifice. So I'm going to be obedient, and I'm thankful for that, and I think that is what was pleasing unto God. There's another story in the New Testament that I love that has to do with something kind of similar. It's not really about a sacrifice, but it is about a fragrance. It's about an aroma. And one of the captions of the captures of this story is in John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is a story that we've read. If you've read through the book of John, it's something that kind of stands out because it starts the, the chapter here in John 12 before other things begin to happen towards the end of Jesus's life. And this is what it says in John 12, the first three verses. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus had lived, or where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha, who is the sister of Lazarus, she served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, with Jesus. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Now let me set the scene for you if you didn't capture it there. 
in the telling and the reading of the scripture. Jesus is at Lazarus' house. Lazarus is a friend of his. Lazarus had died. They had sent word to Jesus, and he waited an extra couple days before he showed up at the tomb of Lazarus. And this is the place that you read that one little short passage of scripture that said Jesus wept. His friend was dead, and scholars have been debating for thousands of years what it means that Jesus died. Was it related to his friend dying? Was it related to the lack of faith that people had in him to raise Lazarus from the dead? We don't fully know, but we know that in that moment, as Jesus looks at the the tomb that his friend Lazarus is laying in, dead, he wept. And now, after Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus just comes walking out of the tomb very much alive... Now Jesus is having dinner at his house. And so his sister Martha is serving. We've gotten this picture of Martha in the Gospels, but we see that she is actually doing the serving there in the house. And she's serving the meal, and she's making sure all the guests are accommodated. And Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus and some other people who are probably friends of Jesus and friends of Lazarus, and they're just reclining at the table. They would have just been sitting there, hanging out, talking, very much like you do at a meal after you kind of push back from the table. And then Mary comes in and interrupts that moment. Now, there are other passages in the Gospels that sometimes uh, it mimics a lot of the details of this story. And you look in Matthew 26, you look in Mark chapter 14, specifically, you see some other stories that are very similar to this. And again, scholars don't know if this is the same interaction or if it's different because some of the details are not the same. Some of the details say that it might have been a few days later. Some of the details say they were in another place. Some of the people say they were in a different house. But a lot of the details are the same, so it could have been something that happened twice in the last week of Jesus' life. But here's what we know. Mary shows up in that moment, and she, as they're done eating, pushed back from the table, reclining there, having a kind of friend and family moment, Mary just kind of interjects herself into the story And she takes a pint of pure nard, which was a very expensive, very sweet-smelling perfume. And she takes that and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, there would have been, by the door of that house, a place for everyone to wash their feet because they were in sandals. And so they've been walking in the dust and the dirt. But when they came into someone's house, they would have removed those sandals and they would have washed their feet and cleansed their feet before they sat down at the table because many times they were eating sitting on the floor. And so if you've ever tried to sit Indian style or sit, you know, kind of awkwardly, your feet are kind of hanging out pretty close to where you're eating food. And so it was very customary for them to wash their feet before they ate in case they were sitting and their feet were near. They didn't want the dirty, stinky, dusty feet to be right there next to the plate that they were about to eat from. And so we don't know if in this instance that even happened or if Mary was doing a duplicate washing of his feet or if he had washed those. In the other story, one of the other accounts were told that Jesus said, hey, nobody even offered me the opportunity to wash my feet. And so maybe that's left out in this version of the story. Or maybe that's a different one. But here we don't see that. Mary just shows up. She takes that pint of pure nard and she takes that sweet smelling, very expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And then she takes her hair and her hair would have been covered. So she takes the covering off probably. She takes her hair and she just wipes his feet, and the sweet-smelling perfume as she cleans the feet of Jesus. Now, in a few days, Jesus is going to get together with his closest followers, and he's going to do the unthinkable, and he's going to wash their feet. But in this moment, it's Mary. It's a woman 
not married to this man who is taking her hair, a very intimate part of her being, and she is touching the feet of this other man who she is not married to. It's an unthinkable thing, even for friends. And I don't know why she does it. In this account, in John, we are not told what her motivation is. I happen to think it might be in response to something. I happen to think it's probably out of the relationship that they have with one another. This family and Jesus were very close. This is the man who brought her brother back to life after he had died. And the sisters had been a part of that. And when Jesus shows up, when Lazarus is dead, those sisters kind of look at Jesus and they say, Listen, if you had gotten here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. They really accused him of kind of dropping the ball. They believed in him to have the power to heal Lazarus. And they said, you messed up because you didn't show up quick enough. Jesus eventually calls him out anyway. So I don't know if there's something in Mary's heart that's responding to that. I happen to think it is something of gratitude. I happen to think that it is. And especially in the other accounts in the Gospels, we see the other woman, if it is another woman and not Mary that's here, we see that she is specifically responding to Jesus's grace-filled response to her. Because that woman for sure is described as someone who has a bad reputation in the town. She is a sinful woman and others would know who she was and she responds in a way out of gratitude to the grace that Jesus had extended. And I keep sitting on that and I'm so sorry. But she responds to that, and Jesus actually says that because of her response to him, her sins are forgiven. It's very similar to what we see in Leviticus chapter 1 when he says, listen, I'm going to actually allow something to stand in the place of you for your righteousness. And in this moment, Mary just responds in a way to Jesus It's filled with gratitude. It's filled with some type of response towards Jesus for who he is and what he has done. And here's the bottom line today. Gratitude is an attitude. We often think of gratitude as an action, right? To show someone gratitude. To be grateful. That's a verb, right? To to be something. To to do something. But gratitude is an attitude. It's a conscious choice for me to choose to be grateful, to be thankful. It is an attitude. It is not something that is an action. The action is born out of the identity, the mindset that we have taken on to say, I am going to be grateful. I am a grateful person. Maybe you've met people that aren't grateful people. But gratitude is an attitude. I ran across this quote, and I love this quote. This is from Pastor Andy Stanley, who's a pastor here in our town. And he says that unexpressed gratitude feels like ingratitude to the ones for whom you are grateful. Unexpressed gratitude feels like ingratitude to the ones for whom you are grateful. If you're grateful to someone and you don't express it, to that person it actually feels like ingratitude. If someone's done something for you, They've given you money, they've helped you in some way, they've blessed you, they've done something that you are or should be grateful for, and you don't express that gratitude to them, it feels like ingratitude. It feels like you are not grateful for what has been done. And I would contend that it's even stronger than that. Because in my opinion, you know what's the opposite of gratitude? I don't think it's ingratitude. I think the opposite of gratitude is entitlement. I don't think that the opposite of gratitude, being grateful, I don't think the opposite of that is being ungrateful. I think born in the heart of that motivation of being ungrateful is that I'm entitled. 
I am convinced that I am due, I am owed what I got. Or sometimes even more than that. So that I would say, yeah, you did this for me, you gave this thing to me, but actually I, I deserve that. So I'm not going to take the time to write you a card, to say I'm thank you, I'm not going to text you, I'm not going to email you, I'm not going to mean it even if I say thank you because it was due me. You should have given me that. You should have done that. I actually should have gotten more. I should have got something better. The opposite of gratitude, I don't believe, is ingratitude. I think it's entitlement. And other times we are grateful, but we miss the bigger picture. A friend of mine, his name is Trey Powell. He's a youth pastor in south of Atlanta. He says this, often we are more thankful for the blessing than we are the one who blesses. Think about that. Often we're more thankful for the blessing than for the one who blesses. I'm thankful for the gift, but I'm not thankful for the giver. I don't take the time to express my gratitude for the one who is doing the blessing. I'm only thankful for the thing that benefits me. And so I'm more thankful for the blessing than the one who blesses. So what is gratitude? If gratitude's an attitude, what is gratitude? And how can I take on this lifestyle of gratitude and being grateful? I think if we just go to this story in John 12, if we look at these other stories that are similar accounts of these women who came to Jesus, maybe it was two, maybe it was just one, but the details are a little murky. If we come to that story and we just look at how they expressed gratitude toward Jesus... I think the first thing that we can know is that gratitude is costly. Gratitude will cost you something. In the account of these women, it's either a pint of pure nard or it's an alabaster jar. Either of those were very expensive perfumes, very expensive fragrances. So it's costly. I think for you to be a grateful person, you have to get over your pride a little bit. You have to acknowledge that someone took the time to see that you needed something and they expressed something towards you that they didn't have to do. And so you have to take time out to respond to that. You have to actually take a moment and stop your busy life, stop your busy stuff, kind of take a pause, hit the pause button, and you have to you know, kind of use your moments, the precious moments that you have, the precious energy that you have to find a way to express to them how grateful you are for what they have done. And I don't know if it's expensive perfume. I think that might get you somewhere in some relationships. But whatever it is, I think it's going to cost you something. You know, some people, their love language is gifts, and so it may cost you money to really express out of your heart the gratitude that you have based on the measure of something that they've given to you. The first thing is that gratitude is costly. I think the second thing is that gratitude can be public or private, but it's always personal. Think about these women. Mary shows up at a dinner party to open this pint of pure nard. That's a public expression. That's a public moment. There's a lot of people around. It wasn't that Mary kind of caught Jesus, you know, over in the back room right before he left at the end of the evening to say, Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for me and for my family. Thank you for raising Lazarus, you know, to life. It wasn't that the woman in, in Mark 14 said, you know, thank you for saving me. Thank you for not treating me the way that other people did. Thank you for not, you know, kind of believing the reputation. It's not that she did that. It's that she interrupts the dinner party and does it in a very public way. But guess what? It was personal. I think sometimes in our culture, and our society, if we're not careful, we use the most impersonal ways to express the personal thanks that we desire to communicate. Let me just say that texting's probably not the best way to say thank you often. Email's probably not the best way to always say something 
like, thank you for what you did for me. And sometimes that's what we use because it's easy to do that. I can just kind of float that out in the world, float that out over the internet, float that over my cellular provider, and they're going to get it. But I don't have to do that costly thing of picking up the phone and calling them, of taking time to go and see them face to face. It can be public or private, but it always is personal. Gratitude can be public or private, but it's always personal. It's costly. It's personal. And the last thing is this. Gratitude leaves a lasting impression on the receiver. Gratitude, I don't believe, is about you. I think gratitude is really about that person. You know, it's kind of a pay it forward thing. I think your response to gratitude actually pays forward in them because it, you know, if you're really doing something for someone, it's not about their response. But man, doesn't it feel great when they respond? Like you do something for them. It's so nice. You, you know, they give you something. They do something for you. And that response is not why we do it. It shouldn't be. But man, that response feels nice to just know that they appreciated what we've done. In this example... Mary takes this really expensive perfume that the scripture tells us in John 12 that the fragrance filled the entire house. The other accounts in Mark 14 and Matthew 26 said the same thing, that the fragrance filled the entire house. And here's what I've said about these kind of moments. I've actually used it to talk about worship oftentimes. And I've talked about how worship moments can be like this. You know, John and the band, Danielle, they, they led us in worship a little while ago, and all of us were in the room. And we got to see worship taking place. But you get to choose if you actually engage in worship, which is what Mary did here. She kind of just took a moment. She wasn't allowing that moment of just being in the room with Jesus to be enough. She wanted to have a personal encounter with Jesus. And so she just takes the time to break open something very expensive, costly, of value to her, something very personal that she'd probably saved up one account so that it could have been 300 denarii. I mean, that's a ton. That's like a year's wages. She takes the time to engage Jesus in a very personal way. This account in John 12 said it was six days before the Passover. One of the other accounts said that it was just a couple days, three or four days maybe before the Passover and so we have this thing that's happening just a few days prior to Jesus being arrested and being whipped and beaten, his beard plucked out, the crown of thorns being placed on his head, and him going to the cross to die as that once-for-all-time sacrifice. I'm going to ask the band to come. And here, here's what I want you to think about. This expensive perfume that filled the entire house wasn't just in the nostrils of Jesus. He didn't just have to look at somebody and say, come and smell my nose and tell me what that is. There were other people in the room that did because they only smelled it from a distance. But you know there were only two people in the room that left smelling like the perfume? Like everybody in the room smelled the perfume and it might have even lingered in their clothes for a moment. But for two people in the room, there was a lasting impact of that moment. Mary had it in her hair, which means that it kind of sopped onto her clothes. It was in her hair, and it was on her scalp, and it touched her skin. Jesus had it kind of driven into his skin, driven into his pores. One of the accounts talks about the, the fragrance, the alabaster being, uh, the, the, the perfume that was in the alabaster box being poured over his head even. 
From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, it would have run down his beard and in his hair and into his clothes and all the way down to his feet. I was in a service one time where a pastor took a bottle of anointing oil and poured it over my head, unbeknownst to me. I couldn't get rid of that smell. It was all over. It was in my skin. It was in my pores. I felt like when I sweated the next day, I was sweating out that oil. I kind of think that might have been what Jesus experienced in the days that followed this encounter with this woman. It was in his skin. And then what happens just a few days later? He goes and he is crucified. And I don't know if this is the case, so please understand, this is another one of those Jeremy translations and not the scriptural thing here, but here's what I've always envisioned when I read these accounts of this woman who takes this oil and pours it over Jesus' head or really kind of washes his feet, washes his legs, washes the skin on his body with this oil and takes the hair and really kind of scrubs the dirt off of him. Here's what I've always kind of read that to look like. That just a few days later, everybody in the house would have forgotten the smell. Everybody in the house, it would have left their nostrils. They would have maybe changed clothes or washed their clothes. It might not have smelled like that anymore. But for Mary and for Jesus, there was a lasting impact on that moment. So I don't know exactly where Mary was while Jesus was hanging on the cross. But I think there's a chance that her hair still smelled a little bit like it. And that she's looking from a distance maybe to see Jesus hanging on the cross, this man that her family loves so much, this man that brought her brother back to life from death. And it could be that she still smelled that fragrance and remembered the moment that they shared. While everybody else in the room maybe took him for granted that Jesus, the Son of God, was in the room. Lazarus is just reclining, laying back. Martha's busy serving, but Mary takes a moment to engage her Creator. I don't know if she did. I'm not trying to manipulate the scriptures, but it could be that she just kind of grabs a piece of her hair. It smells. To remember. That in the moment of great hurt, in the moment of great pain, that she had taken the opportunity to say thank you to Jesus. Before it was too late. And I don't know if this actually happened, but I I envision Jesus hanging on the cross and the nails have pierced his skin and he's hanging there and the crown of thorns is on his side and he's been struck with a spear. And and I, I don't know if it happened. They've plucked his beard out and he's bleeding. He's been sweating out so much that he's actually sweating out blood now. And I don't know if it's still in his skin and if it's still coming out of his pores, but I just have to believe that maybe there was a moment when everyone in front of him was screaming and yelling and cursing him and saying, we said we believe that you were the son of God, but now we don't. And we want you to die. We want you to be crucified. And his father, God, seems to have abandoned him. And he's hanging halfway between heaven and earth and there's no one there sharing in his misery. I don't know if it happened, but I hope so much that the Jesus that I love had the wind just blow through and it caught his hair and it caught his beard or somehow it wafted the things that he experienced and that perfume hit his nostrils and he remembered just a few days before, before it was too late, before everybody was screaming and cursing at him that there was a woman who took the time to say thank you. I hope he experienced that. So in that moment where he felt abandoned and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Or just a few hours before he had said to the Father, please let this cup of suffering pass from me. Maybe there was a moment where he was reminded that someone took the time, the costly, personal, lingering moment. Say, thank you so much. I don't know what Thanksgiving is for you. I don't know if it's what I've described to you this morning. I I don't know if it's turkey and stuffing and sweet potatoes and banana, you know, cream pies or banana puddings. And I, I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's football. I don't know if it's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I don't know if there's family there. I don't know if you have to work all day. I don't know if you'll be by yourself. I don't know if it's just you and your spouse because your kids are gone. I don't know if you get to see your grandkids. I don't know if you're single and you don't live with anybody else and your family's not close and so you just don't know even yet what your plans are. I don't know if it's a split family and you got to go see this family in the morning and this family in the afternoon or this family today and that family tomorrow. I don't know. But that's not what Thanksgiving is. That's not what Thanksgiving is. I mean, it's what I've described, but that's not what the day's about. The day for us is a a once-a-year reminder that we should be thankful. It's like Valentine's Day. If I only tell my wife I love her on Valentine's Day, eventually she's not going to believe it. And if we only are thankful around Thanksgiving, I don't know that we're really thankful. I mean, we can Instagram our daily thanks every day in November. But I don't know if we're really thankful. Because gratitude is not an action. Gratitude's an attitude. It's costly. It's personal. But it lasts. Let's pray. God, I pray today that you would help us to be thankful. That, God, you would help us to be reminded of everything that we have to be thankful for. That, God, in this moment, Thanksgiving may not look like the things that I've described this morning, but, God, that you would help us just to pause and reflect on the blessings that we have. The good health that we have or the family that we have or the job that we have or the blessings of finance that we have or the friends that we have, the future that we have, the hope that we have in you. Help us to be thankful. God, help us to take on an attitude of gratitude. It's going to cost us something. It's got to be personal. But it's going to last. Help us to take the time to be grateful for those in our lives who have done something that requires a response. Let us be known as the most grateful person in the lives of the people that we interact with. Let us be known as the most grateful church in this community because we respond with a heart of gratitude and an attitude of gratitude because first of all, we're grateful to you for the work that you did through your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We no longer have to bring the finest of the herd and kill the animals so that we can be made right with you. We are right with you 
because of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Help us, Jesus, to live in such a way that responds to that act of sacrifice. And let this week be an incredible start to a fresh reminder that we are called to be grateful. In Jesus' name we pray.